You're listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. What's up, everybody? It's me, it's me, it's Gino V, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with another episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And in case you missed the last episode, we are in fact back after a several year hiatus. The Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast has been rebooted, and this is the second episode of the new run. So, welcome if you're back for the first time. Uh, welcome back if you caught last episode, and let's get rolling. Let's start things off right now. I am going to, right here on air, crack open an ice cold Coca Cola and pour it into a glass. I don't know if you can hear that, but that is the sound of Coca-Cola effervescently pouring into a glass. Uh, It's 8.30 a.m. as I'm recording this, kicking the day off right. Um, I don't always drink soda, but when I do, it's often Coca-Cola. Actually, that's not totally true. It can be any number of things, um, although the amount of instances in which I drink uh, soda are few and far between these days. There was uh, certainly a time in my life where I got a kick out of consuming or engaging in uh, activities, substances, and practices that were not necessarily optimal for my overall health and well-being. And while I always kind of have that pull, that, that part of me that like pulls me towards being a health scofflaw, as I've continued to um, age here, uh, well into middle age at this point, um, I'm sort of starting to value the not feeling like I'm dying. 24-7 over the uh, the instant gratification, the cheap, quick, fleeting thrill of, uh, you know, chugging sodas, smoking cigarettes, uh, eating unhealthy foods, all of that. I'll do, I'll do any and all of the above here and again once in a while, um, but as we move forward through life and I'm trying to, to keep things in balance and keep myself functional, um, the egregiously unhealthy activity has definitely been tamped down. Um, That being said, um, once in a while I do get a craving for soda. Um, Most recently this was brought on by um, over on the IC Robots flagship show, the stay at home or the stuck at home show here on the IC Robots radio network. Um, ISR hearkened back to a talking Coca-Cola machine that used to exist in the town of Santa Rosa, California. And um, I, too, lived in Santa Rosa, California around the time of that Coca-Cola machine. And in fact, that was kind of uh, more or less the neighborhood shopping center for where I lived at the time. So I was well, well versed with that talking uh, device. Um, I think I was only allowed to purchase sodas from it a handful of times. But I remember it well, and um, ISR's mention of it uh, got me in the mood for soda, Um, either Coca-Cola or I was also feeling a strange craving for, I think he even might have mentioned Fanta orange soda. But as I said, soda isn't really a staple item here at the Sensational Household. So I had this sort of low craving for quite a while before I actually did anything about it. Now, one of the ways that soda has entered our household over, I'd say, the last five years 
is through a concept that my wife, um, Ms. Sensational, coined as uh, Crisis Cokes. Back when we had a huge wildfire when we were living in Santa Rosa, California, this was in the year 2017. One of the things we did to sort of occupy the time and lift spirits in those uncertain days as the fire was raging and it was unclear, would we have to evacuate? How long was this going to go on? We stocked up our house with various junk foods and snacks and uh, a case of Coca-Cola that were dubbed Crisis Cokes and that we all partook in because why not? It felt like the world was ending. Let's go ahead and go out on a high note uh, with some sugary, unhealthy fluids. Um, now, in that case, the crisis did not last particularly long. It felt long at the time, but it was soon over, and crisis cokes were a limited, limited time offer. You know, it wasn't going to become part of our day-to-day -day diet or routine, so it was fine in small doses. And that's one thing I want to put out there when I'm talking about trying to get a little more healthy, on one hand, you know, that's a great thing. On the other hand, something I cannot abide by are is the other extreme, the extreme of just never dipping into stuff that might not be ideal, never just like letting loose and, and eating a little more than you're supposed to or eating stuff you're not supposed to. It's all fine once in a while. All things in moderation, including moderation. So anyway, uh, five, six months ago, whenever it was that this pandemic situation really got real, one of the things we ended up doing was reintroducing the concept of crisis cokes. And so there were crisis cokes in the house for, you know, the first week, the first couple weeks, the first month, the second month, when suddenly we realized that this crisis was not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and as we know now, the crisis is still very much with us. Um, so at a certain point, crisis cokes just became cokes and cokes were in the house on any given day. And I don't know about all of you, but in the early days of the pandemic, the first couple months, I was in much more of a place where I actively feared the disease. Not necessarily even consciously, but subconsciously. My major stresses at that point were still focused on the virus itself. And this is certainly not to say that uh, I still am not concerned by the virus, and it is certainly not to say that I do not take the pandemic seriously. I very much do. I think one of the major problems, major cognitive problems people seem to have out there about the virus is to either be just um, hypochondriacally in a neurotic frenzy that they're about to get it themselves, or because they're not immediately getting it themselves, thinking that, oh, it's not a big deal. I can go out and I'm not going to get it. That's not the point. The point with this disease, the, the risk, you could probably, I imagine, go to 10 mask family gatherings, not wear a mask, and not get the disease and not pass it on to anyone else. <clears throat> but um, you could also go to one of those and get it. The issue is, you're not you're likely not going to get it and not going to transmit it if you do not partake in those behaviors so why would you partake in them it's sort of like with the you know um another uh uh endemic pandemic virus hiv there's just there's obvious ways to curtail getting hiv D you know don't have unprotected sex don't share intravenous uh 
needles. Sure, you could probably do both of those things and not get HIV, but the only way you're going to put yourself and put others at that risk is to do those behaviors. So it, it just, it makes absolutely no sense not to curb those behaviors. Getting off the soapbox, back to uh, crisis cokes. The issue was the, the crisis is long standing, long with us. I was drinking coke all the time, but I was also in this heightened state of like any minor ache or pain or sniffle. Is that COVID? Did, did I just get COVID? And so I was starting to develop quite a few sort of stress-related um, malaises. Um, I was having chest pains all the time. So, but then, you know, I'd stop to think about it. And I was like, what, what are the chances that um, right at the onset of this global pandemic, I suddenly have heart failure, heart disease? I, it makes much more sense that I'm feeling stressed out and my body is manifesting these uh, symptoms, which sure enough, I think it was. But I also um, had kind of fallen off... Uh, I've been on a pretty good health and wellness and exercise pattern leading up to the pandemic, was going to the gym, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, all of that ended. So I had about a month of just sheer inactivity at the beginning, which I think was um, helping along some of those strange aches, pains, weird symptoms, feelings of stress and anxiety. Plus, I was drinking a lot of Coke and it got to the point where like, you know, I'd be drinking a Coke and I could almost feel like the high fructose corn syrup just eating away at my heart, you know? <laughs> so um, anyway. Crisis Cokes had to take a hike for a while, and I literally started taking hikes, and since got back into that tip-top shape, you know, I lost about 10 pounds, uh, I've been eating well, not drinking Coke, but then these cravings came on. So you know what? I decided um, a, a couple weeks ago that um, one of the walks I do on a regular basis around town here takes me to a Rayleigh's supermarket. So I was going to walk to the Rayleigh's supermarket purchase a case of crisis cokes, walk back, and then dole them out between myself and the kids very slowly. Um, so I would have the benefit of the exercise and the cokes, you know, life's a balance, the yin and the yang. And long story short, the cokes are still here. I've been drinking them at a very uh, measured pace and I don't have chest pains. It's all good in the hood. And I guess I should add as a postscript, uh, at risk of killing the gimmick, I am being a little bit hyperbolic of the amount of Coke that I was drinking. So please don't anyone get it twisted and send concerns, um, advice. I got it handled. Just amusing anecdotes about Coke I wanted to throw out there. And with that roundabout treatise regarding nothing out of the way, we're going to take a quick break and then be back with the rest of the show. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Nice. Let's quit now. That's my advice. We can't do anything by working with each other. I ain't gonna work for free. Tell me 
what's in this for me? We can't do anything by working with each other. Come on, kids, take a shot. Show them what we really got. We can't do anything by working with each other. La, 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 And we are back on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And is it just me or is that, um, I'd like to buy the world a Coke jingle and attendant commercial, just one of the most horrific aesthetic things of all the times, just the kind of cloyingly, simperingly sweet song combined with these Images of annoying-looking people vapidly grinning. I don't know. Not not my bag. Sorry, Coke. That, that, that one doesn't do it for me. I was much more into the uh, Max Hedrum campaign. But hey, uh, no matter how horrendous I may find that advertisement, it was the creative output of some committee somewhere back in the 1970s. And... Creative output is what we're going to talk about today here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Now, creativity is something that has been a lifelong struggle for me. And I feel like I'm only just now maybe kind of starting to come to peace with it here well into middle age. And by struggle, I guess what I mean is that For as long as I can remember, I've always had a part of me that has felt compelled to, I guess for lack of a better term, create content. I mean, that's kind of a newer buzz phrase, but that's really what the the urge has always been. That Ever since I was a little kid, I didn't really feel uh, whole unless I was creating something, creating some kind of story or image. But the other side of the blade, as it were, is that creativity is hard. Creativity takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And although I've always had the drive to create, my creative powers have never been such that I'm able to create anything that is going to produce any kind of significant material reward. Um, I'm never going to be able to sustain myself in the socioeconomic world based off anything I can create. And I think it's a combination of, on one hand, lack of the necessary natural talents, and on the other hand, um, really just wrong place, wrong time. I've just never really had the proper confluence of events in my life to um, be in a position where anything that I have to produce creatively um, is going to be of enough interest to enough people or uh, commercially appealing enough, um, basically to be able to make money off of, which is fine. Um, But then we get back to the fact that creating takes a tremendous amount of time and energy. So when you live in a world that is dependent on material remuneration for effort um, and you're putting a ton of effort into things and receiving none, it makes it hard to sustain sometimes. Um, But the need to do so remains, and that's where the struggle for me has arisen over the years. On one hand, you have this relentless voice whispering constantly over your shoulder, create, 
create. But then when you give into it to try to make it happy and you put in all that time and energy, you find yourself kind of spent and struggling in other areas of your life. But then if you ignore the voice, that constant whisper starts to create this just sort of black, empty abyss gnawing away at your soul. Um, so over the years, I've gone back and forth with how to deal with this struggle personally. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, I think I've finally found sort of at least a momentary place of balance with this uh, creative struggle. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look back at um, some of my different creative phases over the years and phases of inactivity and what has come out of all of them. And the reason for this is maybe if you out there um, can relate to this struggle at all, uh, maybe it might be helpful to hear what someone else has gone through with it. Um, and if not, chalk this one up to another uh, cry into the abyss. So I think my earliest uh, memories of being conscious about the need to create and the act of creating started when I was pretty young. Um, there was one birthday I had in particular. It's probably I was turning three or four. And uh, I had started to become cognizant of action figures and toys. And this was the first birthday where I received a ton of Star Wars action figures from various relatives. And I was really aware of the fact that these things were just kind of falling from the heavens. Um, and they were these tools giving me this unlimited potential for playing out and creating narratives with these characters. Um, characters, which I will add to, which is funny at the time, you know, obviously I had not seen the films or whatever, the film or films, I can't remember how many were out at that point, but um, the first one for sure. But in any case, I had no canonical understanding of these characters. I, a lot of it was made up in my mind, what they were about, uh, what they were doing, why they were doing it. But in any case, um, that third or fourth birthday where I received a lot of Star Wars toys and figures started me off on a path of just spending endless hours weaving long, complicated, layered narratives about what the characters were doing, what their struggles were. Uh, I turned a bookshelf in my parents' house into this huge prison complex that they would get put into and have to escape from, where I'd have them on a shelf, and then I'd pull some of the books out on either side to create walls, and they were stuck there, and they would have to figure out a way to get out of the prison world that the uh, bookshelf represented. Uh, I remember that was one of the first ones I really spent a lot of time with. Um, and eventually, over the months and years, uh, action figures from other franchises would enter the scene, and I would mix and match them, making the stories even more complicated and layered. And this was really my first experience that you put all of this time and energy into this creative process, and for what? I, there was no way of, of capturing the stories I came up with at that time. Uh, there was no one to witness them other than myself. Um, so I was spending a lot of time doing this and why, but at the same time I was getting this immense, uh, satisfaction out of doing it. And this pattern with toys and, uh, narrative creation would continue until I was about 10 years old. And then just like that, 
the spirit sort of left me. And I think I might have told this story on a previous uh, episode of the podcast from the first run years ago, so bear with me, and I apologize if I did. But I vividly remember this evening in 1986 when I was playing in the living room of the apartment we lived in at the time. And um, at that time, I had this thing going on where I would take the um, plastic uh, case that went over the top of our Sears VCS. It was like the Sears version of the Atari 2600. There was a plastic, clear plastic case that would go over the top. I would take it off and flip it over and that created um, what in my mind was a wrestling ring. And then I would bring in different action figures from different franchises. Like I'd have a John Jones superpowers action figure on one side. I'd have maybe a Ghostbusters, real Ghostbusters, like an Egon Spengler on the other. And they would have a wrestling match and we would see which one would come out victorious, which style would reign supreme. And this is actually a theme going on throughout my life. But anyway, at this time, uh, I was doing this with the action figures. And I remember I'd been feeling increasingly sort of deflated about it, where it was something that at one point in time I could do, and it was very vivid to me, and everything felt very real, and the creative juices felt flowing. And by 10, I felt like I was starting to kind of go through the motions. And this particular night, I do remember John Jones was in the ring. I do not remember who his opponent was. but. I was just about to start the match. We'd just done the ring introductions. And in this corner, the Martian Manhunter, John Jones, and then whoever the heck he was up against. And they were just locked up. Uh, and uh, the phone rang uh, in the kitchen. And my mom went and picked it up. You know, this is back in the day of corded, corded phones in a specific spot in the house. My mom answered the phone and I hear, hello? What? What do you mean he's dead? And uh, uh, my grandma had called her to alert her to the fact that she had found um, my grandfather lying face down dead in the backyard of their San Francisco home uh, after he had been angrily uh, cutting at some ivy in the backyard with uh, garden shears. Uh, anyway, it, it's funny because I, I heard her saying that and I instantly knew what had uh, had happened somehow. I mean, not the specifics about the garden and the ivy, but <laughs> I knew that it was my grandma calling to say my grandpa had died. And uh, just like that, it was as if all of the animating spirits that had been inside, been inside all of these action figures that I'd collected over the years just simultaneously uh, floated out of their plastic shells into the ether, gone forever. And my creative powers to be able to bring these uh, toys to life and to create these stories that somehow filled that need inside of me was gone with them. And I remember even then at age 10, just thinking like, well, why did I spend the last 10 years messing with this stuff? I could have been doing anything else. I could have, uh, I want, there were just a million hours wasted on this and now it's gone and it was for nothing and no one cares. Uh, and then I probably started playing 2600 or something and moved on with my life. And it's funny, I was going to say, now fast-forwarding to the next uh, major episode of Futile Creativity, I can remember, but we don't actually have to fast-forward because it was that same year. Uh, it was in 86, I was in fourth grade, and I remember, I think it was like February or so, it was the, the holidays were over, the bonafide winter was over, but it was this kind of gloomy, rainy day nonetheless um, in February, and we were sitting around watching local network news or something, and there was a, uh, 
piece on this new trend called garbage pail kids um, that were popular with the youth, but very hard to find and very controversial and shocking. And after the spot aired, um, I was sitting there with my dad and we were watching it. He's like, hey, let's go find some. So we went out uh, driving around Santa Rosa looking for garbage pail kids and found none because they were in fact scarce and hard to find. And it was some time until I finally did uh, get a hold of my first pack of those much uh, vaunted garbage pail kids. But something about that scarcity, I think, turned them into something more than they were in my mind. And I became obsessed with making my own garbage pail kids. Now, this involved uh, cutting out cardboard backing, and uh, I'm not the most uh, handy person then or now. So the cardboard backing of wild, wildly varying sizes and shapes. There was no uniformity here. And then um, drawing the Garbage Pail Kid picture and name on one piece of paper, gluing that onto one side of the cardboard backing, and then... Um, writing up the info card um, on another piece of paper and gluing that to the back. And let's just say I was not the most skilled uh, Garbage Pail Kids creator. My Garbage Pail Kids were kind of sorry. I, I, one I remember off the top of my head was uh, I had uh, Haley Comet. Get it? <laughs> Haley Comet. He was, it was a Garbage Pail Kid face that was a comet. Uh, kind of miss. <laughs> Missing the the point, I think, of the franchise. It was not particularly edgy, but uh, nor nor even a good <laughs> pun. But uh, I spent like a good part of like the latter half of that school year just sitting in class under the radar, not paying attention to a thing that was going on, and just making garbage pail kid after garbage pail kid after garbage pail kid. I wonder what I did with all of them because there were a lot of them, um, and that started. Um, a trajectory that would continue for me of um, starting to kind of slip out of the world of, of organized education out of school um, because I was always too busy in my own head, too busy doing these creative pursuits. And again, these were pursuits that are not were not going to get me anywhere in life, quote unquote, other than that they were fulfilling this creative need. So again, it makes me wonder, like, is it worth it? I don't know. I definitely would have had an easier time in life if I had focused more on just quickly and efficiently going down the path that it takes to be socioeconomically viable. But, I mean, what would the blow to my um, imaginal world have done for me? You know, what, what's the trade-off? Is it better to be a creatively fulfilled person, um, at least in that basic inner fulfillment of creative need, or is it better to just get your stuff together and leave that distraction aside? Do what you need to do and, you know, get a good job and all that excruciatingly boring stuff. Now, moving to the next uh, spoke in my warped wheel of creativity. As the years went on, um, and I mean, this started when I was really young, uh, all the way through to like junior high and then eventually high school. Um, I would often get teachers that would encourage me about writing. I was perceived to have an ability to write well. Um, so I was often uh, encouraged to enter writing competitions or to try my hand at writing. Uh, but the problem with me in writing is I never knew what to write about. Nothing easily or immediately came to mind. 
And while I do, you know, have some ability to string sentences together and whatnot, um, that uh, being able to meet that with a very solid idea, put it all together has never come naturally or easily to me. Still, in high school, I had a girlfriend who I am now married to, um, and she, before I knew her, had uh, spent one summer attending a California state-sponsored summer school for the arts. Um, she had gone there for creative writing, and it was this summer school that you would go away to on a college campus for about a month, live in the dorms, and there were people there for creative writing, people there for visual arts, dance, music, blah, 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 etc. Um, so the next year when we were uh, a couple, I figured, well, I mean, if she's going to go there, I'll try to go there too. And she went for her second year. I applied for my first year in creative writing, and lo and behold, I was accepted. But when I got there, this was down in Southern California at the Cal Arts Campus in, I think it's in Valencia, California. Um, it's a somewhat famous uh, art school. I think Tim Burton went there and a few other folks like that. Um, the school's kind of up on a hill and it's this weird, freaky place. And then uh, down from the hills, this kind of surrounding, really cookie-cutter, boring suburban neighborhood. And uh, urban legend had it that that was... Uh, Tim Burton's inspiration for um, the situation. And I think, was it Edward Scissorhands where he kind of lives in this weird house removed from the boring town around it? In any case, I showed up to summer school as this kind of naive, dopey teenager. And most of the other teens that were attending there already had very polished, um, well-defined uh, personas, artistic personas. Um, you know, uh, I remember when I first got there, uh, I was uh, immediately questioned, who's your favorite writer? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, Dr. Seuss. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I wasn't really like a, a sophisticated uh, postmodern novel reader at the time. Not that I am now either. But, uh, but that was kind of the vibe there um, overall. So I just felt kind of really out of the loop the entire time because these other kids my age, but to me, they felt like much older and more sophisticated were writing these like sophisticated uh, treatises about God knows what, um, you know, various like uh, uh, adult topics um, that were just foreign to me. And meanwhile, like the only thing I remember really uh, writing, um, we had to write stuff and then walk up and read it to, in front of everyone. Um, the only thing I really remember writing was this uh, little story about... Um, being a kid in Atascadero, California, and uh, torturing ants in my backyard, and then feeling um, great remorse and regret for it, but then going out and doing it again. And <laughs> I don't know, it, it, it didn't really, it didn't get over um, in the sense that some of the more racy stuff that was going on there did. So writing, it, it's kind of funny. It's a little bit different than um, things like playing with action figures as far as creativity goes, because... Uh, there are, it is something you can present to other people. It's not a complete just creativity into the void. Um, but unlike playing with action figures, I never felt any real satisfaction from it. Like it didn't, it didn't do anything to sate that creative need in me. And I don't know why. Writing has always been the thing that other people in my life have bugged me to do creatively. You should write more. You should write more. But again, it's just that, that disconnect. I've never been able to connect the writing with something that I really feel confident about and satisfied by.
And now I'm looking at the uh, clock here and I'm realizing that there's no way I'm going to finish this topic in one episode. Uh, the last episode that I did uh, went longer than I wanted it to just because it had been the first one I'd done in years and I was worried I wasn't going to have enough to talk about and then I actually had way too much to talk about in one episode. So I'm trying to keep these things closer to um, the 30-minute mark than not. And we're past the 30-minute mark here. So what I'm going to do is this is going to become a two-parter. We're going to finish creativity on the next episode. Um, we're going to talk about the time I spent um, playing in a punk rock band that got very, 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 very marginally successful. Success in the terms of like, people outside of my immediate family and friends knew about the band. <laughs> but uh, but also the only experience I've ever had with uh, a creative project, you know, kind of getting out further than uh, my immediate sphere. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other um, uh, fruitless creation that I did that uh, was very addictive to me and filled that need, but then was really causing problems in my life. Um and we will talk about where I ended up now and this podcast. Um, so that's going to be on the next episode, which I will be getting out um, sooner than later. I'm still hammering out what the schedule is here. Um, the first episode of the second run, which was actually the 10th episode overall of the podcast, um, just went live um, the day before I'm finishing recording this. Um, so right now I've for these first two, I've been able to record an episode a week. I don't know how frequent ISR wants to publish them. We'll talk about that. We'll go back to you. I'll have a firmer sense by the time the next episode drops. But yeah, this is going to be a two-parter. We are going to continue creativity next time. Um, hope you will come back to hear uh, how things end up shaking out. Hope uh, maybe some of you other mundane creators out there could relate to some of this. Um, yeah, we're going to be back. In the meantime, you can at me on Twitter at Sensational Vega. Uh, that is Sensational Vega. Uh, you can look me up on Facebook and shoot me a friend request. Um, I am still working on getting SensationalVega.com up and running, and that's going to be a companion to this uh, show where I post various stuff as I write it, if I write it, maybe, sort of, kind of, who knows. Uh, meanwhile, you can also check out supportthereport.com if you would like to sign up for the IC Robots Radio Network Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Also, uh, make sure that you are subscribing to the IC Robots Radio Network and uh, checking out all the great content that is available there. Um, so with that said, it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, signing off with another episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network.